The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Oh, yeah, here to set you free. And somebody who helps us to do that is Scott Paul. He is going to be with us today in this hour. We're glad to have him with us. If you're listening to us live, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is the number. And if you're listening to us on the rebroadcast of the program, well, you can always send us online any questions, opinions, comments, or concerns. Scott Paul is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The AAM is a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And for many, many years now, over a decade, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-mind issue for voters and for our national leaders. And they've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Scott Paul. Hey, Scott, good afternoon. Welcome back. Good to have you with us. Hey, Leslie. It's great to be with you. Uh, great to have you with us as well. Um, I I, speci- I want to talk about, there's so many things to talk about, and I want to like get to all of it uh, today. Um I want to talk about China. We've talked about China before. We've talked about our policies with China, China's policies, and um, how there's a transformation, a transformation in trade, a transformation in policies, a transformation, some would say, in tone uh, with the conversation between specifically Donald Trump and uh, China's president. And how this isn't necessarily a good thing. And there's a lot of people that have weighed in on this in some uh, great articles. Uh, John Pomfret wrote a great piece in The Atlantic entitled, What America Didn't Anticipate uh, About China. And he goes into the history from the late 19th century up into the Second World War and how Americans were seized by the idea of transforming China into Christian. Uh, also capitalist. In other words, America on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Um, do you think that there is that mindset that we had from 19th century up to World War II uh, again now? Or do you think that Americans are more realistic in our dealings with China and their policies and, and trade? Yeah, Leslie, it is a great question, and we're going to try to unpack uh, several hundred years of history in a, in a couple of minutes here, um, because because you you pointed out that you know this is I, I guess the, the the conflict or the potential for conflict between our cultures uh, has been there for a very long time, and the United States has done some really really horrible things. To China in the past, the both I mean, excluding Chinese citizens from the United States, you know, uh, you know, a, a little more than a hundred years ago, is one good example of that. Um, we're we're our, our actions were completely unacceptable. I I, th- I think today, when you fast forward to modern times, the the issue is that you had corporate America 
that saw China both as a potential market because there's a billion people there to, to sell products into, but also as a potential workforce um, where they could pay workers uh, 10 cents an hour. They don't have to deal with the environmental regulations that they do in the United States, and then they could bring those products back in the United States. Um, and, you know, I think you, Americans tolerated it for a while because, you know, we're not paying much for T-shirts or for toys or for, for, for whatever. But recently, as China has grown and grown and grown, as the economy has grown and grown and grown, uh, there, there's been more pain that we've experienced in the United States with a lot of factories shut down. We've seen that manifested in our politics. We've also seen that manifested in our, our health uh, and, and in our uh, different sorts of social impacts as well. And to get at the, the I think, the uh, the heart of what you're talking about is that there was some belief that some of the sacrifice might be worth it if we made China a little more Western-like, like if we were able to make China a little more rule-following when it came to economics, a little less dependent on the government, uh, and and to uh, you know and to make it a little more democratic because it's an authoritarian society, and we've had a couple decades of experience now. And the the fact is, and I'm glad you referenced that John Pomfret piece because I think it's good, that simply hasn't happened. I mean, there were all these – and I remember being in this debate about two decades ago whether or not to bring China to the World Trade Organization. Bill Clinton, a lot of Democrats, uh, although I was not among them, but a lot of Democrats were saying, you know, if we bring China into the World Trade Organization, it will help to democratize China as well. That was the promise. Well, that hasn't happened. And, uh, it, it, and, in fact, the opposite has, has happened. China has grown more authoritarian, less tolerant of dissent, and not only internally, Leslie, but that's externally now. And we've seen that manifested with its actions against the NBA when the Houston Rockets general manager dared to tweet out his support for Hong Kong or for when an airline lists Taiwan as a destination because China views it as a renegade uh, province. Or one of the favorite things I know you have mentioned before, Tom Cruise, and how in the new Top Gun movie that's going to be coming out that Tom Cruise's flight jacket has changed so that the Taiwanese flag isn't on it anywhere because, God forbid, you would want to offend the, the Chinese censors. And so I, I think the question is, you know, setting aside Trump and the trade policies, which are very important, um, but, you know, is that are, are, are we getting changed? Are we self-censoring a little more uh, because of this relationship with China? And if we are, what can we do about it? You know, it's interesting when we talk about history and talk about trying to, you know, make China anglicize them in a sense, making them more westernized, making them more white, if you will, Christian, capitalist. Um, but Americans, don't you think, were also afraid of the reverse happening? I mean, in 1870, after the Civil War, Congress limited naturalization to whites and to blacks, and I, I don't think that was a mistake. I think they were concerned that uh, Americans uh, might become a little bit too Chinese, if you will. Are there, are there those concerns now when you look at the policies that China has and the changes that have come about uh, since uh, the turn of the uh, 19th century uh, and the 20th century? 
um, into present day. Yes, I, I think that there are some concerns, and and I'll tell you what my specific concerns are. Like I, you know, the, the, like for instance, this administration and some folks' approach on immigration, which is the fear of the other or the blame of the other, I think is very dangerous. And so to to say all uh, all immigration from China was or is bad, or all. Uh, Chinese researchers are or should be considered to be suspicious, uh, or all trade is bad. That, that's that's not the case. However, I think that there are also serious concerns about the actions of the Chinese government and how you know China has clearly used uh, its system and its researchers to try to gain access to U.S. intellectual property. Um, in ill-gotten ways, and China's clearly used the trading system to its advantage, and this happened not only under Trump, but also under Obama and Bush, uh, and, and we didn't really push back a lot. And so I think the danger for me is, like, you, I don't want America to be xenophobic. Uh, I'm certainly not xenophobic. We shouldn't be afraid of China, or to be afraid of people of Chinese descent, or to in any way limit their ability to come in the United States. However, I think from a policy perspective, we need to carefully consider the kind of relationship we have with the Chinese government and the agents of the Chinese government uh, who are stealing intellectual property or business secrets uh, that's doing harm to the U.S. economy and also the Chinese government actions that are, in essence, not tolerating any sort of dissent whatsoever, whether it's internal or external, about the Chinese handling of Hong Kong and the pro-democracy demonstrators there, uh, its remembrance of Tiananmen Square, its treatment of Tibet, its treatment of the Muslim minority and uh, the, the Uyghurs uh, in Western China. Um, I mean, all of this is a serious concern, but unfortunately, China doesn't want any of us to have, or the Chinese government, I should say, doesn't want any of us to have a conversation about it. And I think that's a real problem, and that certainly runs counter to a lot of the values that we've hold that we have held dear for a very, very long time. Well said. Scott, we're going to take a break there. We're going to come back and continue our conversation about our relationship with China, the policies China has, our policies that we have with China, and maybe if these policies more and more are are doing more harm to us, the United States, than good, maybe benefiting the Chinese. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of the AAM, and you right after this. Don't go away. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. For American Manufacturing, 
Check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org, and follow Scott on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM. Also follow at KeepItMade in USA. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, we talk about the fears that Chinese had, in a sense, and that our desire as America to westernize China, talk about fears of we uh, becoming too Chinese, if you will, or becoming uh, too much like uh, China. But you can't ignore China, right? You can't ignore them, uh, not just because of their size and their power in the world, especially when it comes to trade, but to just look at sheer numbers. I mean, back in 1963, in an interview with Playboy magazine, even Frank Sinatra, the uh, singer, said, I don't happen to think you can kick 800 million Chinese under the rug and simply pretend that they don't exist. We can't, but obviously we're dealing with different governments, very different ideas of trade, and there's no surprise that China wants to overtake us uh, when it comes to trade, and they, they want to be numero uno in the world, or at least perceived to be, correct? Well, well, I think I think that depends, Leslie. I think that China certainly wants respect, and according to its own plans, and again, Chinese government, just so people, I can remind people, you know, it's a it's a communist government. Uh, there are some private sector companies, but there are many companies in China that are owned by the government, and it does regular five year plans and a lot of state planning and a lot of trillions of dollars of subsidies to boost up its company to meet to meet goals that it lays out. And it does have goals to dominate uh, certain industries by 2025. And these are really important industries, the, the aerospace industry, the auto industry, uh, nanotechnology, biotechnology, uh, clean energy, advanced battery cells. And so if you look at some of the industries that we, we view as the kind of the core of the American economy, or at least the, our, our goods-producing economy, China wants to dominate. And so the question is, what do you do about it? And first of all, we obviously need to do things internally to make sure that we have our workers prepared for the jobs of the futures, that we are competitive in research and development, that we have a good infrastructure, a good educational system. We need to do all of that, but we also need to make sure that uh, there, there is fair play when it comes to international trade and investment. And, and here is where I think that, that at least Trump has the strongest case. But he's not the first to make this case, I will say. You know, Obama made it in some limited ways, uh, and there have been a number of Democrats who have realized that the, that, the love, that the playing field wasn't balanced for a long time, and there were a lot of trade unions that realized that the playing field wasn't balanced for a long time. And so I think that there's some belief that we have to have some accountability uh, in this relationship and that it needs to be changed in order to be sustainable, because right now uh, it's just not. And uh, I think the problem, though, is that Trump's approach to this, uh, I, I don't think he was necessarily wrong to say, let's do some tariffs uh, to gain leverage. I actually think that's one of the few points of leverage we have. But the way that he's carried things out since then has been really incredibly erratic, which, of course, is not surprising given the rest of the presidency. But it leaves everybody kind of wondering what comes next. Uh, the stock markets uh, you know, will go up. If they think there's going to be a China deal, they'll go down if they don't think they are. Businesses have no idea how to make investment plans. Uh, that means that they're less likely to hire workers. Uh, and so it has a ripple effect uh, 
throughout the economy. And we definitely do need some changes. And there have been some Democrats who've been talking about this for a long time, people like Sherrod Brown, like Chuck Schumer, uh, like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and others. Uh, but we ha- I think we have to do, do it in a way that we don't necessarily view China as the enemy like we did the Soviet Union. Uh, but perhaps an economic competitor, that's certainly fair. Someone who may not always be strategically aligned with us, in fact, may never be strategically aligned with us. But, but how do we continue to have a relationship where we have disagreements, uh, but where we, where, where we need and should get a better deal out of it? And so far, Trump hasn't been able to thread that needle. Uh, and and given, given the administration so far, I'm not, I'm not sure that he can. Uh, and I don't disagree with you there. Um, you talk about things that people have done. We got to look at things like Mark Zuckerberg, right? I mean, with Facebook, uh, he's pulled publicity stunts jogging through smog uh, on Tiananmen Square. Uh, he learned broken Chinese. Um, he asked the Chinese president to give an honorary Chinese name to his unborn child. Of course, he turned him down. Um, you know, that's tech. Uh, we've seen LinkedIn staying there. We've seen Google uh, for years. And this is just in the, uh, the tech industry. Are there a lot of companies, uh, because they want that business, that Chinese business, in a sense, bending over for China, regardless of the policies that hurt America and hurt American workers? Absolutely. And, and that is where this kind of corporate greed whether it comes from corporations, from individuals, has been pervasive. And it's really hurt our, our case to try to get genuine reform because these people look at the almighty dollar. They say, we can make a buck here. We're going to muzzle ourselves. We're going to self-censor ourselves. Uh, it, it goes against everything that American values have been about. And, and we've made a lot of sacrifices that way. And, and these companies, I mean, Google actively participates in the censorship of Chinese citizens and aids and abets the Chinese government uh, in helping to track dissidents, too. I mean, it, it, can you imagine? It's just hard for me to, to, to imagine that. But that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, part of this profit motive and the lack of morals that a lot of these companies have when it uh, you know, when, when, when it comes to dealing with China. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk more about this and other issues and aspects of uh, this topic. Stick around. Scott Paul's our guest, president of AAM. Like I told you during the break, check out their website. Go to AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM and also follow at Keep It Made in USA. Sounds like a good idea, right? We'll be back. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. We are back with Scott Paul, president of the AAM, and we are talking about China. Um, Scott, can we skip to some other things with China? Because there's a lot to cover, and I want to get to all of it if we can in in this uh, short hour that flies by whenever you're on because it's so easy to talk to you. And you put into layperson terms some things that people don't understand with trade or foreign policy at times. Um, You know, there were reports that the the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the FBI uh, began a vast effort to root out scientists from China who they said were stealing biomedical research for other countries from institutions across our nation. 
And the reason I bring that up is we've talked about China's policies, but we can't ignore also their practices. And this would be uh, definitely uh, not just uh, in, in, in our neck of the woods in a legal practice, but certainly immoral, if you will. Um, and, and going further, especially when you're negotiating you know, trade practices and policies with that nation that you're stealing information from. Yeah, this is a really important issue. And it goes back to one of the things that we said at the top of the show, which is that we don't, I mean, what we don't want is xenophobia to create a China scare or anything like this. But we can't turn a blind eye to the practices of the Chinese government. And we have to find a way to both welcome researchers and academics from China into the United States because we are the most desirable uh, system of higher education research institutions in the world. We're simply unmatched, and we want to attract the best talent to be a part of that. But I think what we cannot tolerate is when there are some, uh, some individuals who – either wittingly or unwittingly, uh, become agents of the Chinese government and are taking uh, research, uh, research projects, research ideas uh, that have been formed uh, at universities, in private companies, uh, and then essentially just uh, copying and pasting. Uh, and there's there's evidence of this, unfortunately, all of this stuff back to back to China and saying, let's do this here. Um, and it is, first of all, it's unethical. Second, uh, it's illegal. And third, there are economic consequences for the United States, both in terms of uh, valuable research, uh, the benefits of having intellectual property, which includes some monetary benefit, and ultimately jobs, because things that are uh, researched and designed in the United States have a better chance of getting built here uh, or developed here uh, than than things that are uh, ultimately researched and designed in China. And this is a, uh, I mean, this is a serious issue. And I know the the FBI has been looking at this closely. Again, not only in the Trump administration, but in the Obama administration as well. Um, and it, it it's something that that should be somewhat alarming because if you think of cutting edge medical research and, and technology as being very very important to the future of our economy to be the future of our society uh, we may be handing over a lot of that uh, to China and, and not as a gift uh, but this is an act of theft and uh, I know that there are some folks on Capitol Hill as well as uh, you know within the administration who are looking at seriously looking seriously at this I just don't want to be it to be used as an excuse to exclude all Chinese researchers and academics. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Uh, but at the same time, there has to be a lot more scrutiny and a lot more attention paid to this because it is having consequences for U.S. academics, for research institutions, and for our own private sector companies as well. And I'm glad that you, um, uh, I'm sure, I apologize that I didn't emphasize enough, that we're looking at 
people that are naturalized American citizens of Chinese descent, uh, not, not, you know, in China stealing from us, but in the United States stealing for China, specifically 71 institutions, including many of the most prestigious medical schools in the U.S., uh, such as Harvard, uh, are now investigating almost 200, 180 individual cases involving potential theft of intellectual uh, property. Uh, just, uh, just insane. You know what? And, and let's tie that back to trade. The Chinese people have a different sort of allegiance to their nation and desire to race for the top and be number one. Um, I, 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 would you would you agree with that? I'm not saying that Americans are less patriotic than Chinese are, but again, different government, different mindset. These people are almost programmed. It, 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 that is demonstrably true, Leslie, absolutely. And part of it is that uh, China has known no other system. Right. I mean, it, it's been under this kind of rule since the mid-1940s, and before that it was a mix of kind of imperialism and colonialism. Uh, so, so that's, I think, reference point number one. Uh, there, there's, not a, there's not a long history of civil liberties or individual expression or democracy. It just has never existed. Number two, China is, uh, you know, the, the people, and I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just a factual things, are, are very nationalistic. I mean, there is a lot of pride in, in China and, and what it stands for. Um, and number three, I would say, is that Beijing certainly has more levers that it controls at the state level to help to emphasize uh, and uh, exacerbate that nationalistic behavior. And so as a result, I mean, this is just a good example. In this latest you know, round of, of trade escalation that we've seen with China, uh, you know, China has been far more successful than the United States in uh, blocking U.S. goods out of the Chinese market than we have getting Chinese goods out of our market. Now, if you look at it as a, at, from a dollar level, our, our trade with China is, is down and Chinese imports are down. But as a as a percentage of our overall trade, uh, China has been been way more effective in that. It can and it can control the levers of the state to that end. And when you're, you know, in the U.S. with our our system of uh, of, of retail and online marketplaces and everything else, uh, there's very little that our government does to kind of control that behavior. It can, it can it, you know, it can adjust price setting somewhat with tariffs a little bit, but uh, the consumers often don't see the full effect of that. And so it hasn't altered consumer behavior nearly as much. And again, here's the, I guess here's the fundamental difference, and let's point to this example from the NBA, because I, I think it's very telling. When the Houston Rockets general manager uh, tweeted out, you know, his support for the protesters in Hong Kong, immediately the apparatus of the Chinese government uh, went into effect. There, there were Twitter bots that responded to this. Um, the, the television networks stopped broadcasting the NBA games, which is a very lucrative market. There were all sorts of, uh, of, of, of threats made, again, excluding uh, the athletes and NBA teams from the Chinese marketplace. And, you know, the, the Rockets and others quickly apologized for this, although 
the commissioner said he respects the freedom of expression. In the United States, what happened was not a lot of support for the for the Houston Rockets general manager statement, unfortunately. Uh, his own players, like uh, James Harden, who's a very popular NBA player, said, uh, we messed up. I love China. And you know, which, which to me was kind of a, a shame because these athletes are so incredibly woke and, and forward-facing when it comes to issues affecting our own civil liberties and economy and everything else like that and disparities in the United States. But when it, when it came to talking about uh, China, they zipped up and they censored because they knew there was a lot of money at stake and that it would be a real consequence for that. And so that – I think that perfectly helps to uh, distinguish uh, how China can harness the power of the state and, and this nationalism versus what we see in the United States, which is unfortunately way too many public figures being apologetic for having confronted China in some way. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some ideas with investing in China or some ideas to prevent or block investing in China. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of AAM, right after this. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. our guest president of the AAM. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org, and follow him on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM. Also follow at KeepItMadeInUSA. And we're talking about not just USA and trying to keep things made, but it becomes impossible. Uh, Scott, I want to jump over to politicians and what some politicians are doing, specifically Senator Marco Rubio, who has uh, planned legislation to block U.S. government pensions from investing in Chinese stocks after the board overseeing the funds put off a decision that would add exposure to China. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board addressed concerns that switching the benchmark for its $50 billion TSPI fund to mirror an index with Chinese assets would undermine both U.S. economic and national security. What is your take on this? And I don't think a lot of Americans know that there are investments being made with pensions in China. Yeah. Yeah. And not only federal retirees, but CalPERS as well. You know, in in uh, California, which has uh, tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of state employees who are retirees. And, and here's the fundamental issue. It's like, you know, every... Uh, it, whether it's a retirement plan or a 401k plan, and whether it's your employer or yourself, you, you make some investment decisions in that. Uh, wh- one of the options is almost in a, almost always an emerging markets fund, and virtually all of these emerging market funds invest in companies that are owned by the Chinese uh, Communist Party. 
So, so the, these are companies that may they may make steel, they may do railroads, they may do telecommunications equipment. Uh, you know, it may even be a company like Huawei, uh, which, which has been blacklisted from doing uh, uh, business in the United States. And uh, part of your pension is being invested into these funds. Um, and obviously, that investment benefits the the Chinese. Uh, uh, government uh, government uh, run companies as well because uh, they're you know they they have more market capitalization that way etc. And so uh, you correctly pointed out Marco Rubio and Gene Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire, uh, have introduced legislation to say at least say to the federal. Uh, uh, thrift uh, th- uh, retirement thrift investment board that you cannot do these investments in these companies, and uh, because it just it, you know, there's there's just lots of reasons uh, not to do it, and um, and and so we'll see where that goes. The it doesn't look like this retirement board is going is going to do it on its own. Is going to pull out its investments on its own. So it may take some congressional action to do this, but it does raise the really important question, again, how we may be, not only through our trade rules uh, and, and through our self-censorship, but also through our investments, kind of enlarging and expanding uh, the government of China's ability to uh, write the future of the global economy. And uh, I, again, I want to point out, I don't necessarily view China uh, as a military threat. Uh, I think they're certainly an economic competitor. We have vastly different systems of government where we respect dissent um, and the ability to, uh, to, to, to obviously replace your government through elections. China does not in any way do that. Uh, and so I think the real question is, should uh, U.S. Uh, taxpayers, U.S. workers, Workers, uh, folks invested in pension funds, uh, be in any way providing some sort of uh, financial support for these companies that are backed by the Chinese government. When we look at what what is being done, um, how you know if we you could speak to this because people talk about yeah this can hurt you know the U.S. economy that's understandable. Um, how does this hurt U.S. security, national security? Yeah, well, it hurts it very directly because we obviously have um, a we we have a limited budget in the United States, both to do research uh, and to uh, and, and to turn ideas uh, into patents and then products that are going to uh, make life better for here for folks in the United States or provide family supporting jobs. And uh, when you've accumulated wealth the way China has, which is through uh, a massive amount of export-driven industry uh, that is heavily subsidized by the government, and by attracting foreign investment um, into uh, these uh, these types of companies that are owned, uh, and by investment I mean uh, shares, but not a not a voice in these companies, uh, it is a it's going to allow China to grow even faster. 
And uh, I, I will just say, the larger the, the, the Chinese economy gets, uh, the bigger the challenge this is going to be. And I'm not concerned necessarily about a large Chinese economy. China has more than a billion people. It's ultimately going to be a larger economy than the United States. Uh, but what I'm concerned about is both the model of governance and the model of the economy there. And, uh, and, and what's, you know, Shouldn't a country that large uh, afford its citizens a, a right to be really, truly heard by by the government in China? That's not the case today. So I don't I, I don't view it as a good idea for us to be financing uh, oppression. I think that that's going to have impacts not only today but in years to come. Let's talk about impact. Uh, sanctions have great impacts, and the World Trade Organizations gave China the go ahead to impose sanctions on up to 3.6 billion with a b dollars worth of american goods um, this is a continued yeah continued fight over unfairly cheap chinese goods you had talked about scott before and you and i both touched upon the cheapness of the uh, goods that china produces um, but this is a decision that's really going to further inflame the president his administration and uh, specifically uh, you you would think uh, any any kind of uh, warmth toward the global trade body with you know w- with looking at future trade deals and possible trade deals with China for certain and and let, let's be clear about this this isn't an issue that Trump uh, initiated or anything like that I mean he's been critical of the World Trade Organization but these are tariffs that the Obama administration put into effect because China was dumping steel and tires and other products into the United States and was costing us jobs. And China challenged this and said we couldn't. The WTO ultimately said China's right about this. The way that we calculate this is wrong. And so everybody is kind of scratching their heads and saying, okay, well, how do you actually hold countries accountable that are cheating on this stuff? And so on this issue, Trump has a point, but I'll be quick to point out that people like Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, others have been raising this for years as well. And I know that, you know, as part Part of their, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders have been talking about a different kind of trade relationship uh, in in the campaign, and so I want to I want to just impress upon your listeners that this isn't just like a Trumpian thing. This is this is an issue that there are many problems with, and that that many parts of the American political system have issues with as well. And so, don't feel like if you're saying bad things about the WTO or bad things about our trade relationship with China, that you're, that you're supporting Trump in some way. That's simply not the case. In fact, you're you're supporting American workers. The way Trump has approached this is to be incredibly xenophobic uh, and also ineffective. Uh, but but to try to you know to try to blow you know blow the right dog whistles for his supporters to hear the right approach on this is to again not be afraid to use tariffs but to have a strategy a strategy at the end of it that says I want to find a way that's going to hold China accountable uh, that's going to allow us to move forward but that is also going to ensure that workers in China have real rights can enjoy can, can join independent unions uh, that, that their companies are not going to be polluting the way they are today, uh, which is just horrendous, uh, and, and that we're trading fairly uh, with each other. And, and that's simply something we haven't seen, and we haven't seen the president uh, articulate it that way either as well. But we, we desperately, desperately need change. Change. In less than 60 seconds, quickly, Scott, 
What would you say would the, ne- the next move should be from the president and this administration? Yeah, so I, I do think that we need to uh, reach an agreement with China, but it has to be the right agreement, and it can't cut corners. For instance, Trump is way too eager to make a deal that he can sign somewhere in America that makes him look like the only guy who can get this done, and I simply don't think that's the case. The deal has to be comprehensive. It, 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 you know, Yes, we need our farmers to get more agricultural products into China. Uh, we need other kinds of exports as well, but we also need to make sure that we're ending the unfair trade practices that China has built up over the last two decades uh, that are costing us factory jobs. And I'm not sure that Trump is as committed to that uh, as he should be. And so that's what I'm going to be looking for. And that's what I hope people will hold him to as well, that it's not just expediency, the sake of getting a deal, getting a nice signing ceremony uh, and getting this issue out of the way. We need to see some fundamental changes. And until then, American workers are really at risk. Absolutely, Scott. Very well done. That's called the post, my friend. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's Scott Paul. Thank you for listening. Keep listening every day, 3 p.m. Eastern, here on the only true democracy in talk. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, Grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.